0: Khalil, Colonna, and this is Nashville. For two decades, Verna Wyatt and Valerie Craig have been working as survivor advocates. They've traveled different paths to this work. Verna, from a place of pain and loss after her sister in law was murdered. Valerie after working with people who live with disabilities years after they met they founded the group Tennessee voices for victims since that moment their philosophies on victim advocacy have broadened to encompass survivors and perpetrators of violent crime. Today, we'll talk with them about their work and how their change in perspective and approach is creating new avenues for healing. Now, heads up for our listeners, this episode contains graphic descriptions of violent crime, including rape. So use your discretion when listening. Now, let's learn more about Verna's journey from being a survivor to an advocate. Verna Wye, thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Well,
1: thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Really appreciate you being here. So, first of all, I just want to make sure that we're using the right term when referencing someone who has experienced violence. Should we use the word victim, survivors, or something
1: else? Well, I think it's interchangeable sometimes, but when a crime happens, they're a victim, and then they work to become a survivor,
0: why is it important to be especially careful with words when we're you, when we're talking about advocacy?
1: I think it lands on people differently. Some people say, "I don't want to be a victim." Uh, when when a crime first happens, that's what you are. You've been victimized. Um, later, as you're going through your journey, you're not a victim anymore. You're working to become a survivor.
0: It's it's interesting because it's pretty difficult with the different terminology, like you said, you know, there's, you know, what can be offensive to one person Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily to another. So, so when you, you've been doing this work for a while, how do you find that balance? How has that balance changed from the work you were doing in the nineties to now in this current era where terminology is kind of the preeminent thing? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think um, early on everyone was labeled victim and then we realized that there's more power in becoming a victor or a survivor mm. and so when someone initially is victimized they're a victim of crime but they're working to become a survivor so it, it i think it's intuitive for valerie and i when we're with the words that we're using for example we had a roundtable a virtual roundtable discussion with people who'd been victimized by different kinds of crimes to find out what the services they received Um, What what were the good services? What were the negative experiences? But we call them survivors because they are on the road to rebuilding their life and creating a new normal.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, going back a few years, tell us who you were in the 80s.
1: Well, I was a stay-at-home mom, and that's what I wanted to be. I had three little kids, um, and I was a homemaker. That was my goal. I didn't want to be... uh, in the workforce I wanted to devote my time to my family so that's who I was until you know the tragedy happened and turned my world upside down tell
0: me about that I know it may be difficult but tell me about your your sister-in-law Martha
1: Uh, she was a remarkable woman and the funniest woman that I've ever known I mean she could have been a professional comedian but Mm. she was an educator she worked with um, she was a math teacher, and you know I hate math. Mm-hmm. I did never, I could never grasp it. But even her students loved her, even in spite of the fact that she was a math teacher, because of her personality. And she always taught in high-risk neighborhoods, in schools that were in high-risk neighborhoods. And her students loved her and respected her, and she loved her students. But after she had her children, she decided to become a homebound teacher and she would go into the homes of students that were too sick to go to class. Mm. And she actually, um, I told her one time she was going into some very difficult neighborhoods and I said, oh, Martha, please be careful. And she said, Verna, these are people just like you or me. They just have harder circumstances. Um, And so that was her mindset. She was beautiful inside and out, funny as heck. And a joy to be around.
0: What did she talk to you when when you talked about her educating and being a teacher? I I have experienced teaching at-risk youth, you know, and it's different. Than it is going different. to what we would call a typical school. What did she talk to you about those experiences and what she was learning at that time?
1: Well, she was learning that their normal is completely different from her normal. She would. I remember one story that she told me. They were all outside on, on the, I, I guess the playground I mean she usually taught middle school and um, junior high mm-hmm. and they were all outside and all of a sudden there was uh, a pop pop mm-hmm. and all of the students fell to the ground and she said well I think that was a car backfire and they said no Miss Wyatt that's not a car backfire that's gunfire and so her perspective was like they knew what was going on in her neighborhood she had no idea because that didn't happen in her neighborhood Yeah.
0: Interesting. I've been through that pretty much similar, Mm -hmm. very, very similar experience. Now, Martha was raped and murdered. Yes. Can you, I'm really sorry for your loss with that. When
1: that happened,
0: what was going through your mind?
1: Uh, It's unbelievable. I think for most people, you see the crime on the news and you feel really sorry for the people that it's happening to, but then your life goes on and you move away from it. But when it happens to you personally, it's so shocking that now your eyes are open and you see it everywhere. Everywhere you look, someone is in pain because of crime, domestic violence, child abuse, child sex abuse, rape, homicide, it's everywhere. And that can make you go insane if you don't find a way to process it so for Martha what happened with her she was a homebound teacher one of her uh, she was uh, going to homes of um, students that were too sick to go to class one of her students was a homebound te- uh, student who was pregnant and had just had a baby and she went one day she called the home to say that she was canceling her class but she would be there the next week on a Friday. And the person that answered the phone was the adult that was usually in the house. An adult had to be in the house when the teacher came. Mm -hmm. Everyone else in that house worked except the live-in boyfriend of the student's mother. And he was attractive, soft-spoken, quiet. Um, And so he answered the phone. She gave him the message. And he gave the message to the family that she'd canceled, but he didn't tell her that They'd rescheduled. Instead, he said, "Hey, I need everybody out of the house next Friday because I'm going to fumigate for bugs." Hmm. Now, he didn't have a penny to his name, and I'm not exaggerating. He had no money. There was no bug spray or fumig anything to fumigate the house, but they trusted him. You know, he lived there with them. You know, he was part of their family. So that morning, he drove his girlfriend to school or to her work um, in her car and came back to the house. And he told everyone, he called his girlfriend at work and said, remember, text everybody, tell them to stay away from uh, the house today because, you know, I'm gonna fumigate for bugs. And then he waited for Martha to come at 11. And so that began our horrific journey that we didn't know until three days later what had happened when they pulled her body from the Cumberland River. So when they pulled her body from the Cumberland River, She'd been wrapped up in an old dirty waterbed liner that had been in the student's home. She had a belt tightly notched around her neck that came from the student's home. There was a pair of pajama bottoms that came from the student's home that tied her knees together. And she, the, uh, the coroner told us that she drowned, that she was alive when she was thrown into the river, and that if she was unconscious... That the water would have revived her, and so she died a very horrific death.
0: I'm so sorry.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's hard to believe that people can treat each other in such cruel and and inhumane ways, Mm. and so that was devastating for us. And the fear that we had for three days because we had this hope and fear, Mm -hmm. like we're going to find her. You know, that was before cell phones were in. You know, widely used. And so there was no way for us to contact Martha when she was, when she didn't pick up her boys from school. Her husband thought, oh, Martha must have told me to pick the boys up. And then, you know, he picks them up and then at six o'clock he realizes something's wrong. You know, Martha didn't ask me to pick up the boys. She's either had a flat tire somewhere or something's going on. You know, Martha's father came over to the home. They called the police and made a missing persons report. And I remember that night, my husband was getting ready to go to bed, and I said, we can't go to bed. Martha's missing. And he said, Verna, where would we even begin to look? He said, Mr. Gillespie, her father, has already gone home. Jeff is waiting. The police have been called. They're looking for her. Um, what could we do? Uh, that's my big regret, because she was my friend and and... My sister-in-law, she's my best friend, mm-hmm. I talked to her that day actually, right when she was walking out of the door, uh, was the most bizarre call. Um, I, You know, you hear this with crime victims, that bizarre things happen right before their loved ones murdered. She called me out of the blue, it was like 11 o'clock, and she, I, it was just, even what she called me about was not important. And then she said, "I've got to go. I've got a class I'm going to," and that was where she was. She was headed for that um, that student's home, but um, it's it, it's just incredibly difficult to believe that it can happen to you. And for Martha, she trusted everyone in that home, and she you know she had a pretty good sense of people too, but she didn't pick up on that. Mm. And long story short. Um, how he got caught, or how he was identified as the perpetrator, is that two weeks before Martha was murdered, a young woman was in the neighborhood waiting on her, she missed her bus, and this handsome man in a nice car, in a three-piece suit, pulled up and said, hey, I saw you missed your ride, Uh, where are you going? And she said she was going to the store, and he said, well, I'm going that way, would you like a ride? And so she said yes, and got in the car. He said, you know what? I'm new to Nashville, and they're supposed to turn my water on today. Do you mind if we drive by my house to see if they've turned it on? And she said, well, okay. They get there, and it's February. And he Mm -hmm. said, you know, it's cold out here. You want to come in while I'm checking on it? And so she did. And when he closed the door, he had a gun, and he raped her, uh, made her put her clothes back on, got back in the car, drove around, drove to um, a fast food place, and said, Go in and get me something, and I'm going to have my gun trained on you, and one wrong move, I'll shoot you dead. Mm. So she did what he said, came back to the car, they drove around some more, and then he stopped at a, like a grocery store. Told her the same thing, I'll shoot you dead if you make one wrong move. Well, this time there were more people around, and so she s- started screaming and said that he had raped her, and so of course he took off. Well, when the police got there, she said, you know, I'll recognize that house because it was painted bright orange. So the detective drove her around the neighborhood, but they never found the bright orange home until two weeks later when Martha's missing and news reporters are on the location of where Martha was last seen. Because my brother-in-law, when he woke up the next morning, he realized that, he called the police and said any word on my wife and they said no and so he realizes they're not looking for my wife so he called Martha's boss got her list of students for the day and started going down the list until he came to the student who was homebound and he said I'm Jeff Wyatt and I'm Martha's husband and I'm worried because she didn't come home last night did you see her and she said well you know it's really weird I came home from the mall, and Mrs. Wyatt's car was parked out front, but nobody had seen Mrs. Wyatt. So at 11 o'clock at night, I called the police, and I said, this is weird. My teacher's car is parked out front, but nobody's seen my teacher. So the police came over. She told them, this is really weird. And what's even more weird is her books are on the bookshelf. And so they towed the car away. We had a You know, we had a missing persons report, you know, license plate number, missing teacher. And when he called that morning, no, Mr. Wyatt, no word on your wife. So Jeff knew that was the last place that Martha had been. So that's why the reporters were all over the the lawn of that and and on the outside of that house Mm -hmm. reporting on the missing teacher. When this young woman who'd been raped two weeks earlier came home and turned the TV on and she said, oh my gosh, that's the house I was raped in. And oh my goodness, I see my rapist over in the corner. So then she mm-hmm. called the police and they really, um, that's how they got on to him. And when they caught him, he was on his way to Hendersonville. He had some relation uh, family members there and he was needed bus money because he didn't have any money. He was going to leave town. He had um, a trunk full of pornography, and he was trying to get away. And so that's how they put the pieces together of what happened to Martha that day.
0: As, As your family is beginning to heal from this tragedy, what i can because this is this your world is flipped and turned upside down totally flipped you go from shock and worry yeah to grief and anger oh, totally. i imagine totally you're in this world you never expected how how did you come to say i'm going to get step into the advocacy world from this
1: well immediately as i said earlier now i saw pain everywhere not just my own pain Every It's just unbelievable how many people are suffering because of crime. And I wanted to do something, so I started writing letters uh, to the editor, and then I started writing op-eds about crime and justice. And at the time, there was someone at the banner um, who gave me access and every time I wrote something he printed it. I even wrote the President of the United States. It makes me laugh now Mm. saying, you know, there's crime going on. What can we do about it? Because nobody's doing anything about it. It just keeps going on. People keep getting hurt. Uh, Lives are ruined and they have to work so hard to rebuild a new normal because that old life, it's gone. You're not getting that old life back no matter how much you loved it. It's never going to be the same. So um, for me, when I finally decided that I couldn't take it anymore because that kind of grief and bitterness and anger, I'd never hated anybody before. I hated him. Mm. I hated him and it's a very, hate is a very powerful feeling. And so um, when he actually was tried for the rape and was found guilty, that was a brave young woman because he, he told the um, jury that it was consensual and the jury realized he was a liar. Uh, And so he made a plea bargain to accept the rape and the murder and the sexual assault of Martha, and he got life plus 30. And so what my brother-in-law was told, if you say I'm guilty, you have to say I'm guilty if you take a plea bargain. Mm -hmm. Well, then you don't get to appeal. So a couple months later, the DA's calling my brother-in-law and saying, hey, there's an appeal, and he's going like, wait a minute, I thought you said no appeals. Well, everyone gets an opportunity that has been convicted to say, um, I think it's called a post-conviction appeal. Everyone gets that, regardless, even if they take a plea deal, to say, I didn't have good representation. So... What happened was that's what he was doing. He was saying he didn't have good representation. And so I was furious. I mean, blind with rage, really.
0: What did you do then?
1: Well, we went to the hearing and I'm sitting in there and I'm looking around the courtroom and I see the judge and the judge's stenographer and the court attorney, the bailiff. The two DAs and the victim witness professional and the public defender had two people there, and I'm thinking this is ridiculous. All of he's he's guilty. He took a plea deal, and we know he's guilty because of the way the the evidence came together. And so I'm getting more and more agitated. And then he gets up on the witness stand, and he said, "Your Honor, I didn't know I was going to have to spend so much time in prison." I feel like a victim, and when he said that honestly, uh, I had this blind rage where you know you see people jumping over the the banisters to get to the mm-hmm. perpetrator. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do that so bad, but you know, I have children, and I'm thinking if I jump over the banister, I'm liable to be the one in jail, so I'm not going to jump over the banister, but I left that day, and I thought I can't continue c- carrying this kind of um Anger and bitterness and hatred and the feelings of rage and revenge. I can't do it. So this is crazy. I knew that the mayor at the time, his wife Andrea Conte, was um, had been kidnapped and escaped her kidnapper. And later, that kidnapper killed a young woman in the park that he'd kidnapped. Um, and so I knew she would understand. So I wrote her a letter and said. I have all this energy that I want to turn into something positive, and I want to prevent other people from experiencing the pain that I experienced. So what can we do? And so she called me. I didn't put my phone number in there, but she called me and she said, meet me for lunch. And so um, I met her for lunch and we talked and she said, I'm going to pull together a group of people. Um, that are concerned about crime, would you like to come and participate? And I said yes, and that was actually the first meeting of an organization that she founded called You of the Power. And so I became a volunteer in that way to take my negative um, energy and use it f- to bring something good out of something so dark. And I've been really doing that ever since and from working as a volunteer with Youth of the Power. I became the executive director for 14 years, and then my focus shifted um, to include incarcerated men and women because they're part of connecting the dots of victimization.
0: I want to talk about that a little bit later and how you met Valerie, but first right. let's take a short break. Sure. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Verna Wyatt and meet her partner in advocacy, Valerie Craig. We'll talk with them both about how their philosophies to survivor work changed after meeting perpetrators of violent crime. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. The survivor advocacy group, Tennessee Voices for Victims, is run by two powerhouses in the field of victim advocacy. Verna Wyatt and Valerie Craig met decades ago and forged a bond dedicated to service and helping to facilitate the healing of people who've been traumatized from violent crime. The advocacy net is cast far and wide to encompass all who need or seek out help. But it wasn't always that way. So now let's learn more about their journey and how their philosophy has changed over the years. Now, heads up for our listeners, this episode contains graphic descriptions of violent crime, including rape. So use your discretion when listening. I'd like to introduce Valerie Craig from Tennessee Voices for Victims to the show. Valerie, thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate you being here. And Verna Wyatt, again, thanks to you for being here as well.
2: Yes, of course.
0: Now, I want to hear about how both of you met in this advocacy work. We heard Verna's journey coming from this traumatic place if that what she experienced to begin this work. Valerie, how did you get into this work?
2: I always tell people that God called me into this work and I really believe that that started actually when I was in college and I worked at a camp for people with disabilities and for the first time I was given the opportunity to really see the power of the human spirit. Um, As I worked with individuals who were really victims of their own bodies, you know, things that they had been born with or things that people had done to them that had caused them not to be able to walk or talk or feed themselves. And what I saw over and over again was how when you have a desire for your life to be better, that you will make your life better. Hmm. And It was such an honor to walk alongside those individuals. I think at the age of 19, that made such an impression on me because I think the fear of having something come into my life that I couldn't control was um, really scary. But to see people living out really just their journeys over and over and over again, regardless of what had happened to them, um, was such a powerful testimony to me. So as I finished college and I had the opportunity to work at an agency that worked with individuals who were 55 years of age and older who had been impacted by violent crime. I I got to see people or work and come alongside people who were victims of domestic violence and victims of sexual assault. But Really what I learned in that was that I was not necessarily wired to respond, I was better at prevention. (laughs) And Mm. so, um, and really felt a calling for that because you know, when you go and you do case management, what you're doing is meeting people in that moment of abject pain. And the question that I would leave with over and over again was, well, why did this have to happen? You know, was there a way to get in front of this for these individuals so they didn't even have to experience this kind of pain and that prevention mindset really led me to begin to think about other opportunities in the community and I, I really kind of laughed because you know this is you know this is years and years ago now and you know we really didn't even use email tons and those kinds of things at mm-hmm. the time but I knew one person um, who our paths had had crossed through community events and I thought well you know what I'm gonna email Verna and I'm gonna see if she just happens to know if there's any um, positions that are open out out there, and I always laugh because it didn't even feel like I it could have gotten to her as fast as her response got back to me. In that they at their agency at You Have the Power were just then looking for somebody to do prevention work, and mm. I thought, well, what are the odds? Mm-hmm. And so Verna invited um, me to come in and to meet the founder. I interviewed for that, and really, the rest is, as they say, is history. I mean, we just um, in those moments began to build a collaboration, not just from the passion of our work, but really a bonding over friendship, and just um, how that has kind of dovetailed over the years.
0: Talk to me more about this prevention work that you the approach that you're taking. Mm-hmm. Like, how was that different from what you originally experienced and learned?
2: Well, for, you know, most kind of work when you're working in a social advocacy field, it is about response. Something horrible has happened and people are responding to that. And that is so needed and so necessary. I mean, the people that are out there that are doing that work, it's it's thankless and it's really really hard because you really are meeting people in that intense trauma. But I do think that there are some of us who have that wiring to look at it and say, well, how do we how do we help mitigate some of this pain? Mm-hmm. And one of the ways to mitigate pain, I mean there's there's lots of ways to do that, but one of the ways is trying to get in front of that. So, you know, through education, um, through linking people to services so that they're aware that w- of what is out there to other things like what we're doing, you know, kind of now, like with like mass violence response. I mean, we know that there's an opportunity that mass violence events may happen in Tennessee. But how do we help strengthen our resources on the front end to mitigate that trauma as much as we possibly can before it even happens? So it's really a shift in just. It's, I, I guess I don't, and it's not, it's a shift, I think, personally, but I think from the standpoint of looking at the entire puzzle, you have to have every piece, right? So you have to have the people who are doing the direct services, but you also have to have the people who are willing to look at it and say, how, how do we get in front of it before something even happens?
0: Now, as you and Werner are working together as colleagues, you're for, forging this deep, deep bond of friendship. Talk to me about your philosophical differences to the work that you both were doing. Did you have similar philosophies, or were you coming from different places, Verna?
1: I think from the very beginning we were a team. It's it's I think the whole situation was really a God thing because it, it was it's hard to explain. From the very beginning, we were on the same page, and we. Um, even our vision evolved in real time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we were victim advocates through and through. We were uh, anti-incarcerated people because in my case, my guy that ruined our life, he was a repeat offender. Almost every single victim that we support and help, it's very rarely a first time offender unless it's a juvenile, you know? And even then, it's probably not a first time, they're probably not a first time offender. So in our mind is, We're letting people out that don't want to change, that don't care, that are wrapped up in their dysfunctional thinking. And if you let them out, they're just going to go on and create a bigger path of victims who have to pick up the pieces. So we were on that same page. And then we evolved in real time to see things in a little bit different light.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil lake We're talking this hour with the founders of Tennessee Voices for Victims, Verna Wyatt and Valerie Craig, about their work and how advocating for survivors changed them. You can share your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, I wanna talk about this philosophical change. What inspired it? You said it happened in real time, Verna. What inspired this philosophical change to where you all began to see perpetrators of violent crime as victims as
1: well. We had an opportunity to facilitate a victim impact class. It was a pilot project that the victim liaison for the Department of Correction had made connections with the state of California. They were looking for other states to join them in this pilot project. And so at the time, the commissioners were very pro-programming and they gave it a green light. So she began Uh, I think there were several other sites across uh, Tennessee that were going to do victim impact programming. And she was actually facilitating the victim impact classes in Nashville, but that wasn't her job. And so we were chatting and she said, I think I'm going to have to give up um, the victim impact class here in Nashville. And as at the time I was executive director of an agency that did programming all across the state on the crime, very crimes that victim impact covers. So I said, Valerie and I can facilitate those classes until you find someone. And so um, the first time that we were in class uh, was an eye opener for both of us. When we left, it's like our whole um, vision shifted because as victim advocates, we got in there and what we realized was the participants in the class, the incarcerated participants, they had the very same victimizations in their past that we rush out to assist every single day as victim advocates, but there was a stark difference.
0: What's that difference?
1: The difference was they accept it as normal. In my world, women are gonna get raped. In my world, little children are gonna be abused. In my world, if you love somebody, they're probably gonna be murdered. They accept it as normal because that's their normal. And until you um, and if you don't realize what long term impact is of victimization, we know what the long term impact is. And so just those puzzle pieces for us came to fall into place. You know, no wonder they've got layers of victimization, not just Mm -hmm. one victimization. They have child abuse. They have Mm -hmm. child sex abuse. They have loss of loved ones to homicide. They have it all.
0: A lifetime of abuse and trauma.
1: That they and, accept as normal,
0: and so and so. Okay, so you both are sitting here in this first initial class. That is an. Is it fair to say that you kind of begrudgingly or skeptically kind of walked in, given your philosophies at uh, the time? Oh, we, we
1: wanted them to understand pain that they'd caused. Okay. That was our goal. All right. we want you. So you came in a little hot. We came, oh, we came in, in hot. hot.
0: You came in very hot. We came hot. in very hot. Yeah. And, okay, so now you come in hot. Yet you're confronted with the truth of these men and their lives. Valerie, talk to me about that moment where you realized, wow, I'm talking to victims themselves.
2: Well, I think it's what we often say about anybody, right? Like you can't argue with somebody's story. Like I I can give you a philosophy, but when you look back at me and you say, but Miss Valerie, this is this is what happened. This, this is my truth." And as you hear people's truth, as you hear them open up about, you know, being stabbed by parents and being sexually abused by caregivers and, um, you know, talking about having, you know, their family's blood splattered on the wall because of a domestic violence incident. And they can remember that and they were seven. As advocates, I mean, how do you not recognize that they're victims? I mean, I wouldn't be a good advocate. Burton wouldn't be a good advocate if we weren't able to step back from that and say, wait a second, we've got to, we've got to take a pause of how we are approaching this. And, you know, that moment where they're sharing those stories, I, I think there's a couple of things that happened there. I think it's one, hearing a different perspective, but I think it's also recognizing. So working with what we would have considered the traditional victim, we recognize how much courage it takes to share your story. So imagine sitting in a prison classroom. This one happened to be in a standalone trailer, all off by itself. There were probably about 20, 25 men in there. So grown, you know, grown men. Mm-hmm. And they begin sharing these really intimate vulnerabilities about their childhood, about their experiences, about the way that they are thinking. I mean, just as human beings, how can we not honor that? And so one of the things that I think we began to realize then was really where we were being called into was this tension between meeting them as victims, but also not excusing what they had done to create victims. and that's a tough place to meet people in um, because it's really easy to look at stories and want to use these horrors to excuse f- future choices. But what we knew is, is that those future choices were the very people that we had spent our lives working with and that Verna herself had experienced that, that victimization. So we knew that we had to hold a space for them That really was about accountability. And I think it was in that moment that we realized we have a whole group of people that we as victim advocates, we as the field of victim advocacy, we have been overlooking, and it is to our detriment.
0: Did you both ride to that initial class together?
2: Yeah, we uh, (laughs) we pretty much ride everywhere together. (laughs) Uh,
0: I, I I wonder what the conversation on the ride back was like
2: shock. (laughs) I think a lot of it initially was we had to process. um, We had to figure out, you know, how are we, how are we going to, how are we shifting and what did that look like in application um, piece of that? But there there was a process for sure. And as Verna said, I think, you know, God is very merciful in that he moved us quickly through that process.
1: Yeah. If you had told me that I would be working with incarcerated men and women thirty years ago, I'd say you are out of your ever loving mind. I would. I don't like offenders; they are victimizers. They don't care. They can't change. Um, and but we should lock them up and throw away the key. We should lock game. them up and throw away the key. In fact, I had the assistant commissioner tell me during this time where I, where we're having this evolution, I Cheryl um, DeMott, who was the victim liaison for the Department of Correction, Act first, before all of this happened, asked me if I would come and speak to her victim impact class in Riverbend. And I said, uh, no, why would I do that? And she said, well, because you're my friend. Mm-hmm. And so when I did that, I went to Riverbend that day wanting to pound them with pain. And what I discovered was they listened to my story and their comments and questions afterwards were uh, very unsettling because I could tell they weren't just um, trying to pull the wool over my eyes. They were very sincere in, in receiving the pain that I had experienced. And so the assistant commissioner said, well, how did that go, Verna? And I said, well, you know what, I'll do this again. Because if just one person in that room hears my pain and looks at victims in a different way instead of a mark or an opportunity, then it's, it would be well worth my time. And he said, well, Verna, I know you want to lock them up and throw away the key. But the reality is 98% of the people that are locked up, they're coming back to your community. How do you want them coming back? And so like for me, that was like punching me in my stomach. I had never once thought about that that people are coming back. Not one time. And victim advocates as a whole never weren't thinking you know, about no, that. No, no. And they still and basically they still, really still are not.
0: Are not. Well, let's mm-hmm. take one last break. When we come back, we'll learn how Valerie Craig and Verna Wyatt took a life-changing conversation and implemented change to their philosophies to create Tennessee Voices for Victims. You can share your comments with us at This is Nashville. We'll be right back. Lake Colona, and this is Nashville. My guests today are Valerie Craig and Verna Wyatt. They're the founders of Tennessee Voices for Victims, an advocacy group for victims of violent crime. Now, before the break, they shared the story of how they had a hard change to their philosophy after meeting with incarcerated men. Now let's learn more about the organization they went on to create, Tennessee Voices for Victims. Verna, Valerie, thanks again for being here. Thank thank you. Okay, so you had this shift during this victim impact class. We understood how it felt, the car ride home. These people are human. Begin to change your philosophies. I know that's drastically different than the approach you had before. Talk to me about when you got back with the organization you were working with, the changes you decided to enact there. How did that play out, Val? Val?
2: Well, you know, initially I think it was okay, but I think what began to happen over time was it's hard for victim advocates to really understand why we would want to come alongside those who create that victimization. And I get that because I see that myself. Um, You see people who are in pain, so why work with the people who cause the pain? And eventually what happened was that people at that organization just didn't grasp that the same way that we were grasping it. And I think it's because we were going in, um, we were seeing it live happening right in front of us. And that's really hard to capture when you're sitting in a meeting, you know, Mm -hmm. later on, not right there in that moment where you're seeing that light bulb moment come on. So it just became apparent that it was time for us to take what we knew and our um, kind of our new shift and how we were looking at things and just really start our own agency. And Mm -hmm. so that was really how Tennessee Voices for Victims got born. It was really born out of our passion around victim impact and wanting to be able to continue to do victim impact the way that we knew it would make the most impact in the community.
0: Now, you you all talked about the balance, the very delicate balance of looking at People who are perpetrators of violent crime, recognizing that they're victims, yet holding them accountable for what they did in the creation of Tennessee Voices for Victims. How did you how did you approach that balance, Verna, so that you could be the most effective with everyone you worked with?
1: You know what, it is hard because you have victims who've had horrible, awful things done to them by Repeat offenders, and so sometimes it's hard for them to understand. But what we, Valerie, and I want the victims to know is, your guy's going to get out, and just like the commission assistant commissioner said to me, how do you want them coming out? You're not going to have any control. They're they're going to be in prison for a while. While they're in there. What do you want to see happen to them? Do you want them to have an awakening? Do you want them to understand where their behavior comes from? Do you want them to have an accountability for what they did and have true, genuine remorse for it? Do you want that? Because if you don't want that and it doesn't happen, they are going to get out and they're going to create more victims. So that it's really, you'd say, do they deserve it? Well, no, they don't deserve it, but we do. Society does. We want them to be better. We want them to be different. And if we just lock them up, give them no kind of special insight or care or programming, they're only going to get worse. They're not going to get better.
2: How? I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say I think that, um, and because we had worked with so many victims, I think we were in a unique spot to hold the individuals that we were working with in prison accountable mm-hmm. because we were able to look at them and kind of cut through all the excuses that we had heard over the years and really be able to bring it back, you know, when you meet somebody in their pain and begin then to connect that to the pain they caused to somebody else, they can't ignore that either. And I think that's actually where the power comes in in the way that we teach victim impact is that they, we we hear their stories and then we invite them into that process of applying what they know from their story to the victim that they created. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones then that it's like, Oh, you mean when I did X, my victim felt like I did when I was that little kid who didn't have power to stop what was happening to me. And as soon as that happens, you see the shift as soon as they get there.
1: I would say that also what we do is different than a lot of people that go into the prisons and minister to the inmates because they're looking at them as victims. But they're not holding them accountable they're not helping them walk through why in the world would you ever consider doing that to somebody else because they're just looking at them oh you've had a horrible childhood and that used to make me mad as a victim and it is but it's true but there's accountability for everybody Mm -hmm. and if you don't come to accountability and if you're looking at yourself as i'm the victim then you're not gonna move forward in your life.
0: So if it it's it seems and sounds like to me that you all are taking this this approach you're actually doing the rehabilitation for people who are in prison, for incarcerated people, which traditionally is the job of prisons themselves. You all have been doing this work for years. I'd love to get your opinion and assessment on our correction system and its ability to, like you said, But 90-some percent of people are going to get out Mm -hmm. eventually.
1: Do you have another hour?
0: (laughs) Because (laughs) I definitely
1: have, like, (laughs) we feel like we're beating our heads up against the wall because, yes, we have been working with thousands of men and women that are incarcerated, and we know what the common denominator is. Child abuse, child sex abuse, and growing up in domestic violence. And if we could eliminate those three things... We wouldn't wouldn't have a need for prisons, and we wouldn't have as many people that are on the outside addicted. We are convinced of it, and we're not providing therapeutic treatment for people who have layers upon layers of victimization. Not just one. They have it all. Mm. You, You know, when we respond to a rape victim on the outside, they know they need help. They are on the ground. It takes them years to get up and rebuild their lives, yet we have women in prison that have multiple rapes because of the lifestyle that they live, puts them in very risky situations where those things occur. They are accepting it. That's what happens in my world. But guess what? The trauma still goes on, Mm -hmm. but it's not being healed or addressed.
0: When you... Talk to officials because this is my personal opinion, not one of this is Nashville or or Nashville Public Radio. I feel like Tennessee, the United States in general, has a very fire and brimstone approach to punishment for crimes without really opening up the possibility for change, yet holding people accountable. When you're talking to officials, people who set policy, people who make laws that really can affect folks being in these positions before... What have you come across? Now, do you feel hopeful that there are at least some policymakers who are paying attention to the experience that both of you have had? Verna, you've had lived experience, and 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 Valerie, you have as well. Like, what are the officials saying to you when you're talking to them?
2: Well, I think that it depends on who it is. I think that there are individuals who understand it, but I. I don't think that they see it quite the same way that we do. Um, I think that there has been movements that have really focused in on things like education, like school education and job education. And what they have not really focused in on is healing the hurt. And I think it's partly because that sounds like it's soft to try to heal the Mm -hmm. hurt. But the reality is all of us in our own individual experiences know if I don't heal, the hurts that I've had in my life, then those tend to go on and dictate how I make decisions moving on. And that's with one hurt. The people that are incarcerated, these are individuals who have had hundreds of hurt, and it does not give them the right to hurt anybody else. But if those hurts are not healed, then it's not going to move forward. And everything ebbs and flows. I think that there have been times in Tennessee where people really understood that. I think that there have been other times when people don't understand that quite as well. And I think it just, you know, it's an ebb and flow like everything else is. Mm. You know, but we- if we want to stop that generational march
1: to prison, number one, we have to help those children that are being sexually abused, that are living in domestic violence, that are being have all kinds of emotional and physical abuse. We need to heal that. And you know what? Third grade teachers probably know who those kids are. But the problem is so big that I think people want to look, focus on something else. What else could we do to help that? Mm -hmm. That is the underlying chaos in someone's life is trauma. There's 25 years of research about trauma and what it does to a human being, yet we're ignoring it Mm. with the incarcerated. Mm. (laughs) Makes me crazy.
0: We got just about a minute and a half left This has been really a fantastic hour. I appreciate you both for being here, sharing your stories and the work that you're doing. Is there anything you want to leave us with in the last minute and a half?
2: I would just want to say to anybody who has been a victim of a crime to let them know that they are not alone. And if they need assistance, that we are available to help. Um, either personally or connect them to who may be a better fit in terms of of responding to them. Um, For survivors who may be interested in sharing their stories, um, we would love to hear from them as well. Um, There are ways, you know, once somebody begins to become a survivor, they want to make sure others have not experienced the same thing that they've experienced. And there are ways that we can, can talk about doing that for sure.
0: Verna?
1: I just think that I'm hopeful just from working with victims and seeing them rise up out of the pit. I've also seen offenders that also have risen up out of the pit and claimed accountability and have gotten out and now are doing remarkable things for their families, but also for the community. So overcoming is really important, support is really important, and understanding the impact of crime and trauma on your life is very important.
0: I want to thank my guests, Valerie Craig and Verna Wyatt, the founders of the advocacy group Tennessee Voices for Victims. I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you both. Thank, thank you for letting us
1: share our thoughts.
0: And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Tasha A.F. Lemley. It was directed by Magnolia McKay. Elizabeth Burton was on the boards. Are the masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Stacey Rector and Raheem Buford. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekolona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.